Hello and welcome to the Non-Breaking Space Show, which you can now find online. We've joined actually up with the folks over at Good Stuff, goodstuff.fm on the web, goodstuff underscore fm on the Twitters, alongside a bunch of other great shows over there, podcasts that you might be interested in. Check them out there. Our guest this episode is Steve Fisher. We actually thought we'd lost this episode, but found it thanks to the miracles of Dropbox and maybe my fault. I'm not laying blame on myself, but it might have been. Our guest is Steve Fisher, as I said, who lives in uh, Vancouver, Canada, and is the founder and experienced architect of Republic of Quality. Your hosts are Christopher Schmidt and Sam Cap. And during the chat with Steve, they cover content modeling, working with clients to understand how your content will work. Uh, Steve talks about discovery in the early phases of the project, how to gain insights, and a lot of time spent also just on open source and the benefits of working in open source projects for profit and fame. Enjoy our chat with Steve. Yeah, so what are you working on right now? Like, like... Uh, right now, um, I am actually working with a national accounting organization to help them merge uh, three designations here in Canada into one. So I've been doing all the research and content strategy work on that, as well as uh, some of the interaction design for them. It's been, <laughs> it's been taking me all across Canada, which, as you know, is a pretty big country, and it's been yeah. fun that way, but uh, quite interesting. There was a lot I didn't know about accounting that I now know. Yeah. Like, so. like what? Like what's the... Um, well, like that, that each province in Canada um, has its own individual reporting for all their accountants, that every accountant out there, and I think this is actually worldwide, um, has to do a certain uh, number of hours of professional development every year, uh-huh. or they can lose their designation. Right. And I thought about how amazing that would be if that was required in web design, web development, you know, that you had to actually keep learning in order to still be accredited as a designer developer yeah because like um because in our industry you have to keep on learning because the the rate of change happens so fast right well you do although i still run across um certain situations where you're interacting with a company and just kind of a little surprised by the things that they didn't know about and you know obviously that's a an upside for them at that point because then they can have a lot that they can learn mm-hmm. but you know there is no um there is no real accreditation in our industry at all. Um, right. And so it's, you're, but you're right. Like if you're not keeping up, you, it should become pretty obvious after a short amount of time that you can't do what's currently needed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Cause like it's like, there's still some like third party companies that actually do certification and, and, and for, for different technologies, but you know, it's some, some, at some point, it's going to come so fast that uh, it's it's kind of hard to actually do that. But I had to see, like, you know, where GitHub is now trying, well, has done, is, like, if you contribute to an open source project, it'll actually mark, you know, with a nice little calendar or green light indicator, like, how you've contributed and, and mm-hmm. you can make commitments and stuff like that. So so that way you can easily see, like, how the progress and stuff like that. But that's all that's all a tangent on, or, or it's all, like, based on the fact that the person you talk to uses GitHub and knows what Git is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Actually, this, this, uh, there is something else that I'm actually getting involved in in the new year that kind of deals with this. Not necessarily accreditation, but there's a... Um, you might have seen these popping up. There's these uh, developer boot camps. Mm-hmm. Um, they're typically between 8 to 12 weeks, and you know, they run like 8 hours a day, every day, um, well, every work day. Uh, and they're meant to help people either make career changes or upgrade their skills quickly, rapidly. Um, and so I got invited to be part of one of these. It's called Code Core. It's the first one in Western Canada, I think, that's 
running like this uh, because they didn't want um, a group of developers to come through and not learn about uh, content strategy and user experience. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to have uh, a certain component in that. So, so that actually will be something new for me in 2014. Um, How long yeah. are these boot camps? Um, this one, I think, is going to be running for, I think it's nine weeks. I'm not exactly sure. They had to shift it a little bit. Um, but they're really meant to be intensive. Hey, here, we're going to teach you um, like Ruby or Rails or something. Mm-hmm. Like you're going to get into it. Um, so they don't go too broad um, because they're trying to help a very small amount of people, like a small group between, I'd say, 15 to 25 uh, learn these skills in a short amount of time. There's a, a lot of those schools seem to be popping up lately, and I feel like that's kind of a response to like how quickly everything is changing. There's mm-hmm. um, there's two down here. One of them is Austin Center for Design. They're not coding as much, but they are getting into interaction design a little bit. And I think that's a three-month program. And then there's Maker Square, which is a 10-week program. That's HTML, CSS, Ruby. Uh, they'll use Twitter Bootstrap. They'll do PHP, all of that other stuff. And everybody lives in the same house. It's almost like a reality show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's it's kind of a fun in the same house. Oh, that's actually yeah. a different thing. I didn't know, that. Um, but it's 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 a fun thing to see these things spring up out of necessity, mm-hmm. right? Because I was involved with what was supposed to be a quick turnaround program um, at a college called Red Deer College here in Canada, and it was five and a half months, um, very expensive, and but but because it was run through this rather uh, formal college. Its curriculum couldn't up, get updated quickly enough, right? And so it was always behind, and it just felt bad for some of the people that would go through this program um, because they just wouldn't get quite to the point that they should or need to. Now they've, I think they've updated it since then, but um, I, I love the the idea of these boot camps. Yeah, I mean, they, um, you know, you've heard me definitely share my frustrations about. Um, teaching something that does change so rapidly. I know at least in Texas it takes up to three to five years for curriculum to change. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I mean, three years ago, four years ago, responsive web design was not this term that was just thrown around by everybody. Oh. And it, it's crazy to think about how rapidly it's changing, but at the same time, how, it's scarier thinking about how places are falling behind, more traditional settings are falling behind. But luckily we do have places like CodeCore and Maker Square and Flatiron School in New York that are kind of responding to that. Yes, for sure. So you're teaching, um, or you're going to be a part of that in this coming year. What else are you uh, doing right now? Um, well, actually, I'm in the process of starting uh, a bit more writing. I'm, I, I've been working on most of the projects I've been connecting with over the last couple of years involved you know, research, content strategy, and um, interaction design. Uh-huh. Right. So really getting to know the heart of what is going on in any project and helping the organizations understand themselves a little bit better. And through that... I began to spend more and more time doing collaborative workshops as part of that. So where there is no, there's no distinction between the client team and the vendors team, where we are working on this um, collaboratively together, really understanding the process together. Uh-huh. 
Um, and out of that, I start to see these great design sprints happening where we're, and I, I mean design from the broader sense of, you know, we are solving this problem together. Mm. Um, and where teams would just get those aha moments so much quicker and they would really buy into the vision, the design principles, everything um, that were happening for those projects. And I began to see these more wholehearted projects coming out where um, the content made more sense to the people that were accessing it, to the people that were creating it, um, even to the stakeholders that were seeing some of the project from a bit of a distance at times. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so these wholehearted projects are emerging and I started to take a look at what was happening around me because honestly, I'd love to say it was intentional that I was trying to move these projects that way, but it just kind of happened with what we were doing as a group um, on all these different projects. And so I'm starting to bring that together and hopefully it will translate into um, a bit of a short book in 2014. So somewhere about halfway through the year would be the target for that. So these teams, like, what what type of projects were these we're trying to solve a problem. Well, various. Um, there was a, a startup out of New York um, that I spent some time with. They're called Curio, and so they're they're bringing um, uh, different startups and funders and things like that together, um, and so trying to help them understand how their message, how what they're going to be producing will work together. So we locked ourselves into a, in a room for three days together here in Vancouver. They flew out here and worked on that and then continued to work on that afterwards. Mm-hmm. Another was a municipality, um, a, sort of a smaller municipality, about 100,000 people um, in uh, Western Canada. And their IT manager, their communications director, their um, web director, and one of their um, people in charge of their content production uh-huh. all sat in a room with myself and another content strategist and we worked through these same things and again locked in a room for about a week sketching things out um, really starting to understand the discrete pieces of content and and trying to find that core piece of content that everything revolved around so essentially doing a bit of content modeling uh-huh. um, but on a less technical side is, is that what content modeling is? I have no idea what that what content modeling is um, well, content modeling is really understanding how your content will work in the system that it's going to, um, and then how it will, um, how things relate to each other. Mm-hmm. So, um, in, the, in the book "Content Everywhere" by uh, Sarah, um, she gives a great example of um, of a cooking site, I think it is, mm-hmm. where they talk about what is the central piece of content. You know, what is it that everything begins to connect to? Because in some places like that, it would be the ingredients. It might be, hey, I want to learn about chicken. What can I cook with chicken? Um, but for them, it because they would see, hey, we would have this recipe here, and then these ingredients are attached to it. This these restaurants use this similar recipe here. These famous chefs use it. Um, you can do this for this recipe. You can pair these drinks with it. Um, so that recipe became a bit of the central piece of content that things started to connect with. So understanding some of the connections and seeing how they then play out with the system. So you need to understand, you know, what are the, how does it work with the metadata and the other um, pieces that may belong in the content management system for it. So you just find like the salient piece of content and then work your way back for that? Or? Well, for us, what we were doing was, yeah, we were trying to drill down, um, like find what is the core content template that we're going to work from that 
that um, things start to revolve around. But then within that content template, finding what is the core discrete piece of content. Uh, um, like for this municipality, it was their um, teaser copy on every page, mm-hmm. right? So it was their, their standard content page was their um, main template that things focused around. But within that, the teaser copy was what everything else started to connect to and spread out from. So if that teaser copy was written well, um, all the connections started to make sense because, you know, someone who li- we all live in different types of municipalities and those municipalities provide all the services to all the people. Um, and so we're typically looking for how to renew our dog license, right? Or how to pay our taxes online. If that first bit of description doesn't tell us that we're on the right page or how to generally get that information, we're lost straight away. And so that became really, really important to them. Uh But for this accounting organization, it was actually um, their landing pages Uh became a bit of this core content because people were looking for topics, right? They were looking for um, different uh, tax accounting or IFRS or other um, technical terms. And so they need to see how all the information related to each other on a, on a landing page. Uh-huh. So is that essentially like to determine the purpose of the website pretty much? Is that? Is that well, like, cause uh, like I can see the, the counting would be like, we're trying to serve um, uh, industry that has lots of different types of accounting or different types of jobs within it. So we need to get people to come to the site and then, Immediately or as fast as possible, get to the right the right section that they're looking for. Whereas, you know, you were talking about your cooking site example. We the main thing is the unique ingredients, and so I should be able to you know find like if I put in chicken, I should have be able to go to chicken and go crazy find chicken recipes. Well, it, it definitely is the thing that helps support or communicate the vision mm-hmm. or the purpose of of the site. Right. Um, it still is guided by the, the project vision and the design principles, you know, uh, but it is the thing that helps us communicate across devices, too. Um, so you think about it. If we're prioritizing our content, we find that, that sort of core piece of content, that central thing mm-hmm. um, that helps us understand the message. And we have prioritized as, you know, priority one. And then there's priority two, which may be a supporting piece to that. Well, when we start to deliver the content across the different devices, um, whether that be, you know, as simple as iPhone, tablet, and a desktop, mm-hmm. uh, we can then say, well, we're going to deliver this piece first because we know it is priority one. Mm-hmm. And they need to see it. You know, that becomes really important when we start to work with some of the newer interfaces that we're seeing. Like, what if we have an audio interface with Google Glass hooked up to a Pebble watch, mm-hmm. right? The Pebble watch is only going to be able to display a really small amount of content. That better be the priority one content. Mm-hmm. But maybe the audio interface in Google Glass is reading you the rest of the content after that because you said, yeah, I want to know about this one. Mm-hmm. So the content modeling and setting those priorities really helps when we're thinking of the, the multi-device world that we're in. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds like almost like a design designer type of role. Is that? Well, yeah, and see, that's that's the other thing that I've been seeing a lot over the last few years is, um, you know, the <laughs> sometimes the fighting, sometimes the good-natured uh, you know, ribbing within there, but where we'll get designers and developers or content strategists or user experience people um, segmented a little too much. Mm -hmm. Right? Like I 
I definitely come out of a graphic design background. That mm-hmm. is where my history is, right? Um, and then have progressed into doing more interaction design, into user experience research and design, and over the last two years, doing a lot of content strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think of myself as a designer, mm-hmm. right? I'm seeing what the issues are in front of me and then coming to help people see the solutions for those or, or responses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we should all be doing that. We should all be design thinkers in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that if we were to put labels on things, designers should be doing this, um, whether that's a graphic designer or a web designer. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't have to be a, a web project to be thinking this way either. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good point. Yeah, the idea of design thinking being a big part of the process, and that there's the strategic side. I can't remember who came out with a book, but it was called Design or Business of Design Strategy or something like that. That covers a lot of this, and it's kind of changed again, going past like just aesthetics and being a more strategic, system-based sort of thing. Well, for for so many years, especially on the web, that's my main. You know, we were designing really fancy buckets and then shoving things in them, Mm -hmm. Um, which I think means we weren't really designing to what the word means, right? Mm -hmm. We were creating, that's that's for sure. You know, we were developing these things, but we weren't really coming up with good responses to the problems, right? And and until we understand our content, our real needs within that, um, we can't know what to design. So how did you get into all this, or how did you get into design and web and all of that? Um, That's a good question. So I've been doing it for a while, and again, it was somewhat unintentional. Um, And it had nothing to do with liking to draw or anything like that. I, in 1994, so way back at the start of the web almost, um, I was heading into college. And a friend of mine had already started an online uh, business at that point. He was actually selling heavy machinery, like cat machinery, online, uh, internationally, if you can believe it at this point. And uh, I needed a job. And so he offered me uh, a job and showed me how to build websites. You know, and they're basically like, hey, let's put an image in here, you know, and there's some text and links. And that's about it, right? Um, And it got... just captured my imagination right away. I thought, I love this. I don't know what this is, but I love this. Um, And then I continued on university um, towards uh, getting a communications degree and kept putting myself through university by taking up these contracts, these design, uh, web design contracts and often graphic design contracts. Um, And then I became a pastor, Mm. (laughs) which... uh, was a a family tradition so to speak like my dad had been a pastor and while I was doing that I was still like pastors don't make much money I was still putting myself or helping myself by taking these little contracts and at some point I actually became disillusioned with the church and and my dad said I think you should do this other thing you know this design stuff that you've been doing you're very good at Mm -hmm. and so I actually looked for a job in the area I lived in and couldn't find a good job um, as a web designer, I actually um, applied for one and couldn't get hired. And so I started freelancing mm-hmm. and then started my own company. And then that grew very quickly. And eventually I sold that. But so my trajectory of this, which I, I don't regret any of it. I love that it's come this way, was um, understanding the web at its earliest stages, um, beginning to understand communications mm-hmm. from uh, an educational standpoint, 
getting to understand people because I worked with um, with youth and families when I was at that church and spent um, I spent about eight years doing that and really got to understand what it was to listen to people mm. right and, and so then talk to people because there were times where I was um, you know at events and I would be the speaker for these events and sharing things I had been learning I had no idea how well that would translate into doing user experience design and content strategy work mm-hmm. you know because um, it's listening to people and really helping them understand what it is that they're saying and their needs are and then finding solutions for that um, now all along the line I've been involved like I was the I'm part of the Graphic Design Society of Canada here, which actually does have accreditations. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I am an accredited graphic designer nationally here and um, have been involved in that society for quite a few years. And it's helped me in my learning process and be connected to community. But I think as we all know, uh, my biggest learning has been from doing, from not letting uh, a wall that I hit on a project stop me from uh, learning how to either climb over it or create uh, a doorway through something. Um, it's been the practical hands-on being involved in various communities and uh, learning as I go. Is there a big... Uh, you're in Vancouver, correct? Yes. Yep. So there, um, there is the accredited design group. Did, did you mention the name of it? It's the Graphic Designer Society of Canada. Okay. And then... Um, I believe you were also, you spoke at TEDx Vancouver. Is that something um, that you were part of organizing as well? No, I uh, actually spoke at uh, uh, three TEDx events in the province over in Alberta. So okay. in Edmonton and Calgary and Red Deer, there are three major cities there. Um, and I wasn't part of organizing it. Um, I was just invited to those ones. Um, but there actually is a really big design community here in Vancouver, which is why I moved here. Um, about 50% of that design society lives uh, within a, I don't know, about 100 miles of the city here. So. Wow. And uh, you live in Vancouver right now with your wife, who you work with at Republic of Quality. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so um, my wife was a teacher for about a decade. Hmm. Um and has been doing writing for, I don't know, as long as I've known her. She actually had a blog in 1997, 98, um, before we called them blogs. It was a live journal. It was, no, online <laughs> journal. Um, so she taught me about blogging. And she has a similar story in one sense in that her journey through working with people and with uh, kids and teaching, and then but writing all along. Mm-hmm. And so just this last year, she, or just over a year ago, she left her teaching job behind, which is a big deal in Canada because teachers get paid pretty well here. They have amazing benefits. They have job security. It's, um, and she left all that behind. Like she had a job for as long as she wanted um, and uh, so that she could do writing and content strategy for the web because um, she realized that those are the things that she actually loved. And so she started her own business. I started my own business, left Yellow Pencil, the company I was at last year. Um, And then we ended up working on a few projects together here and there. We ended up working out of the same space. Like I can see her desk from here. And eventually it just, we said, well, why aren't we doing this together? There's, of course, that natural fear of should I work with my spouse? Um, You know, is that going to damage our relationship? But we've actually really loved it. Um, so Shen focuses on the 
the writing and content strategy side of things for us here, like helping teach people how to write for the web and think mm -hmm. that way. And then you're focusing more on? I focus more on strategy and um, user experience design. Um, so a lot of the projects that I've done as the Republic of Quality um, have been me coming in and doing the user, the stakeholder research, um, working with um, maybe another content strategist to help um, audit all the things. Sorry, excuse me. And Sorry. That's okay. And then... Uh, Couldn't find that mute button fast enough. Sorry. <laughs> Um, and then take it to the next stage of really understanding uh, how does that content translate into um, an interface, an interaction? How do people actually access it? I, one thing that I haven't done a lot of since um, being part of the Republic of Quality is um, sort of the graphic design side of things. Right. Uh, I still do that. Like I did our site and all of our branding, and I've done a couple projects that way. But I don't know. Like I, I'm... I love doing that, right. but I also don't want to be the person that tries to do everything. You know? mm -hmm. um, I think it's good to have some level of specialization. Right. So, yeah, because I feel like um, it's good just to know how everything works together, because otherwise I don't think you could be walk in there and walk into a company and just say, like, this is how, you know, things, you know, if you, if you don't know how things work together or don't know how the web works or interactive, so I think it's be kind of hard to be a content strategist or... Yes, or that. So yeah, it's it's pretty important to know that. But um, people still listening, like what, what like I don't know, I'm very fascinated by uh, by being a pastor and in, in your in your background and, and how. The, so, so what what kind of like techniques or, or things that have did you learn by becoming a listener that you found that were like eye opening, if you will? So, um, well, I think one thing I observe when someone isn't very experienced in doing. Um, say user research or like and I, I mean like actually talking with people mm -hmm. right and sitting down at a table with either a group group of individuals is that um, we have too many questions mm -hmm. right we ask too many questions and have prepared too much to um, it's good to know the types of information we're looking for mm -hmm. but often when I sit down at a let's say it's a small group of stakeholders maybe four or five um, you know, I'll I'll just put out three or four questions. Like that will be all that's on the agenda. I'm going to say, "Hey, um, tell me about your experience with the current website, right?" And we'll start to have a conversation. Maybe the next one is, um, I, "I want to know all the pain points that you've had from your content management system or your um, marketing site, whatever it happens to be. You know, what are some of the good things?" Because these larger questions often lead to the deeper. Um, conversation and insights that um, that we're looking for, mm -hmm. you know. And it's too often that I see people that don't have a lot of experience in this that'll come and they'll assume they know the right questions, and so they'll start to ask them and start to lead the conversation. Uh, and then we don't really get true discovery uh, because discovery happens um, in the moments between the planned activities, mm -hmm. right? Where we actually have this bit of human interaction, this relationship building, essentially. Right. Um, and so that I think that was one of the biggest things that that my journey has taught me along the way for how to really gain insights for developing a, a wholehearted, really successful project. So, are these the kind of standardized questions that you ask everyone, or, or like you know, your what the pain points are, or? 
uh, you know, almost always it's there's something related to pain points and where are the good things. You know, uh, people love to talk about their pain points. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's an it's an easy one, and and it's good to bring humor into it too, so that people don't get like so negative about you know their experience. They just can't dig themselves out of that or climb out of that hole. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I almost always there's just this opening, very broad question, pain points. You know, what are the, some of the good things? And then the blue sky. You know, what is if you could dream of anything for your website? Mm-hmm. What would it be, and why? So that's the other part that's often missed is why. You know, um, we can't just have opinions floating around, right? It's like, well, I really want it to be blue. Mm-hmm. So, why? Well, because blue is our brand color, and we have. You know, we represent ourselves that way. Well, that's a good why, mm-hmm. right? But if it's, well, I like blue. Right? That's an opinion. I get to ignore it at this point, right? Um, <laughs> so, and I actually do say that. Like, in, in when I do, whether it's designing collaboratively, you know, so uh, recently with that accounting organization, I was in Toronto with them and um, put up a couple of style tiles. And we spent two and a half hours together, or sorry, two hours chatting about these style tiles and what it meant to their future project and what they would like to see out of it and framed it in that we're doing design critique um, you know so we're not we're not trying to solve all the problems here we're trying to find the things that don't work but then also we're dreaming for the future here so um, but that opinions don't don't count in that room so it was framed that way so when someone shares well i really want it to be a white blue gradient and i ask why he says well i guess that's just my opinion um i can actually say to this entire group there's about 30 of them i said um you know well, that's your opinion i don't have to listen to it mm-hmm. and chuckle a little bit and the whole room laughs including this person mm-hmm. because we've had that connection point earlier on mm-hmm. uh, yeah but but definitely, you know, the, the blue sky thinking at the end is a good wrap-up to those questions. Sometimes I get a lot more specific, um, but that's usually only if I am in sort of a second round of thing, right? And, or if I'm talking with a very um, specific group, like I'm meeting with the CEO of a transit organization or something like that. Like, I have to be direct with that person and uh, use their time well. Mm-hmm. So when you're showing them style tiles, are you showing them your uh, WordPress built style tile theme or more of the Samantha Warren style or has that even evolved? Uh, I guess it's evolved a little bit. Um, I, To be honest, I kind of look at the WordPress one as a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it's so? still, well, I, I remember being asked at a conference I was at um, if I, if I felt that a web designer needed to know how to code, and I said yes, they don't have to be the best coder in the world, um, you know, or anywhere close to that. But they should be able to do a bit. They should be able to understand it. It's their medium, you know. If if I don't understand my medium, how can I design properly for it? Um, and then to create something that someone doesn't need to know how to code at all for to do uh, a thing for web design. Um, so. I actually have a version of that that I probably should have released and maybe will, where it's just this really stripped down, hey, if you can do really simple um, HTML and CSS, you can update this with your elements here. And you don't need WordPress, but you need to jump into the code a little bit. Um, Honestly, I've used that WordPress one, or, well, I've never used the WordPress one. I've used that, like, in code twice. Mm. Um, Since then, I've actually been providing um, PSDs, Mm-hmm. Uh, well, not the PSD, but the, the ping that comes out of it, and right. um, 
it looks a little different than Samantha's. Well, honestly, Samantha's look a little different than they do on her site now, too. She's evolved them a bit over mm-hmm. the last couple of years. Um, you know, it still abstracts the design from the, the UI. So they're not trying to say, why is my content on the left and my navigation is somehow floating over here? Right. You know, it's just showing chunks of elements um, you know, still communicating typography, um, texture, overall um, feelings like describing some of the adjectives that would um, fit with that. But, um, but yeah, I don't actually use the tool that I helped create. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel that so many too. Like uh, there's there's things I built that um, I don't know. It's kind of I built respon- I built a responsive artboards for Illustrator like back in the day when like iPhone and like earlier, and now you know. Now I realize like we can just export things with safe as web, and we don't really need artboards for that. But um, yeah. the idea was just so that people could quickly mock up uh, layouts for different resolutions and see how they would fit. And mm-hmm. that. So, but now I'm totally on board with like uh, building in the browser and yeah. designing the browser now. So I'm like, ah, this doesn't really help. Yeah, sometimes yeah. it kind of feels like there's more tools that are supposed to help make our job easier that we have to keep up with now than actually like doing the job. Yeah. Yeah, well, exactly. Like uh, a good tool, and and I didn't even know about this. I didn't do any research at all when I created those interactive style tiles. I just thought, well, I need this, and we use them for a couple projects at Yellow Pencil. Done. Oh, let's make it WordPress. Blah blah. blah. Yeah. And then as soon as I posted, uh, Brad Frost said, "Hey, this looks a little like the uh, what are they? The style prototype, which right. uh, Sparkbox produced. And those are better, actually. You know, yeah. like they're um, they make a lot more sense from a like they're they're." The ones that they have in their demo are very simple, yeah. um, but when I just look at it, I go, "Yeah, why should they be more complex for what they talk about here?" Right. Um, you know, and so if I was to point someone in a direction, I would actually point them to style prototypes. <laughs> yeah, it's just, um, but there's nothing wrong with actually building a tool that maybe someone else has built or whatever. But, but um, or you didn't know they, they built it because you gained that experience. Yeah, it. no, I, I don't regret doing it at all, actually, and releasing it. Um, uh, yeah, and, and I learned quite a bit from that, you know, and it made me refocus on things to say, yeah, a, a good web designer needs to jump into the code every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a good reminder of that to me. Mm-hmm. So, Yes, but, um, but it's, it's, it's also kind of hard because like, sometimes I feel like, uh, oh, I'll just build it, and I have, to re- I have to realize, like, I should just Google first. Maybe someone's already built that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just find out, like, oh, yeah, they already did. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. Well, that might impact the success of the thing you built. Yeah. I still think it's good. Like, you were kind of saying this, Chris. It's still good to have built it, though. Right. To have gone through that process. And unless you're counting on this thing to be a success financially somehow. But right. Right. Um, the you know, building is learning, right? That's, right? that's how I've learned. So I, I know this is going to be an awful question, but I'll ask it anyway. What is your process like right now? Because you, you do have the content modeling. You do have the user research. You have um, style tiles and things like that. Is there, uh, I know it's not going to be the same from, from job to job, but is there kind of a process, maybe a current one that you are kind sure. of starting off of or using as a jumping off point? Yeah, well, um, so I did have a, I do have a site. It's called responsiveprocess.com. Uh, in Canada, we pronounce it process, though. Um, <laughs> you but, you're going to say that. We'll forgive yeah. you anyway. That's okay. That's true. Oh, <laughs> anyways. Um, 
Okay, I don't have a comeback. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but I've, I've, that's, that content has been up there for two years now, actually, because it was December two years ago that, that we originally published that. And it really needs to be updated. And uh, some of the things are still quite relevant. But um, what I spend a lot of my time doing, so I'll take you through... Um, I guess essentially five steps um, that have sub things within them. Uh, so, and this is a bit after having some of the um, initial kickoff work done in a project where you're establishing a bit of that relationship. But one of the first things um, is seeing the vision and following the guideposts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so this would be like phase one of a design sprint type of thing where it's establishing the user experience vision or the project vision, whatever you want to call it. And then the guiding design principles for the project. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so these aren't goals, but these are the, the guideposts that we'll look to whenever we're making a decision mm-hmm. to say, um, well, we said we were going to put um, our audience groups first, that their needs were first before our internal needs. Mm-hmm. So when we make a decision at a design meeting, at a design critique, we'd say, oh, well, if we want to vary from that vision or from that design principle, mm-hmm. Um, we need to have a reason. We need to have a good why for adjusting it. Otherwise, we can't. So within that, we focus on the why behind everything, the non-urgent important items that will set us up uh, daily on the right path. Mm-hmm. And this is part of like, so within there, you craft the project vision, um, if it isn't already. And you, know, you uncover the design principles. You connect, with the, the vi- you connect the vision and principles to the overall project goals. Mm-hmm. And maybe you need to define some of them there if they haven't been already. Mm-hmm. Right, um, and then uh, you do this collaboratively again. So this isn't something where I would go off into a room by myself, create this document, and send it out um, and say, "Approve this, please." Mm-hmm. You know, we actually would be on GoToMeeting or Skype, or you know, would be great if we're in the same room working through this together as a broader project team, client and vendor. Um, yeah, the, the next thing after that would be understanding how to fall in love with your content. Right, mm-hmm. it's. It's not enough to know where all of the content exists. We need to know its quality, its past struggles, its future hopes, and, and why the hell it exists, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, sure, we'll still audit all the things, um, but we'll do it with heart. We'll look for clues uh, that will lead us to the core message and our wholehearted content, essentially, right? So that comes through doing really exciting things like inventories and so the quantitative, what exists. I was actually thinking that uh, content strategists should have their own CSI show, basically. Because uh, if they can make that shit, uh, interesting on CSI, then uh, anything can be. Um, can you imagine that? Just watching someone on a spreadsheet with uh, okay. really exciting Miami colors behind you. And zooming on the pixel. I'm like, that's the pixel. Yeah. Holy that, crap. That murdered this content. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, you get to take and, your well, glasses off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Okay, now I'm really distracted, thanks. Um, uh, but then audits, you know, understanding the uh, uh, qualitative side of things, right? and the, which all leads us up to the, the gap analysis, you know, connecting the past to the future. So understanding, okay, well, we've got what exists. And, and sometimes that's nothing, but that's a pretty rare case now, unless it's a new business, right? Almost always I'm working on a refresh or redesign of, of, a, of a, pro- a web property. Um, but yeah, connecting the past to the future with a gap analysis to see what it will take us to move from what we have to what we want, mm-hmm. basing that again on the vision and, and goals. And then this too needs to be um, a bit of a collaborative process. And that doesn't mean that we've got you know six people in a room doing an inventory. Mm-hmm. 
but there's at a point where we talk about that together. We begin to understand because we've had this moment creating the design principles and the goals mm-hmm. where we say, okay, how does this gap translate to that? You know, do we need to adjust anything? And again, it connects our human side of things. We're moving towards this wholehearted project. What we do is uh, well, and these aren't all perfectly linear. To be honest, like sometimes they overlap quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But the getting to know your audience, you know, because actually our audiences are part of our team, and I think we don't acknowledge that enough. Uh, so we need to interact with them in that way. You know, they're real people using our websites, touching our content. You know, we have the opportunity to trade uh, empty personas for rich conversations. So this is moving past usernames and finding people. Um, Frank uh, Camaro has this great quote in his book um, where he says, uh, usernames are people. And they are, right? And we sometimes lose sight of that mm-hmm. you know, when we look at analytics of things. Um, then contextual interviews, so getting to know people, talking with This is some of what our, our earlier conversation was about. But um, bringing from the, the empty personas into those real conversations. Right? I'm, I'm not actually a big believer in personas at all uh, i know it's a little controversial because a lot of people like to use them. i have oh, used them and, yes. and do mm. i i actually like um uh sort of the, the user profiles right um or audience profiles rather um and what's the, what's the difference between a persona well, and often, often a persona will give it a name we'll say hey this is um julie right mm-hmm. um and so we'll have an image, a name, we'll give them some characteristics, we'll say that they're 26, right? And so they represent this group. Mm-hmm. And, and that's great because we're trying to give it a human side, but all we've done is create a robot, mm-hmm. right? With no soul, um, because they're not a real person. It would actually have been better to just pull out someone who is Julie in the project and say, this is Julie, this is exactly, and it may not be representative of a group, but I think that that would be more realistic and healthier. Whereas these audience profiles... Um, they're a bit more honest from my perspective. Mm-hmm. They do talk about people, but we don't just give it one name. This is not Julie. Mm-hmm. Hey, we're talking about college students that are ages 18 to 24. So like a demographic? Right? Yeah. And, and then we, we do break down the same types of things, characteristics, but there's this small distinction for me where we're not faking it. Mm-hmm. You know, not trying to make something up. Now, <laughs> this is me sort of expressing my opinion mm-hmm. <laughs> so maybe it doesn't count um but i actually think that these these profiles are more honest and i really believe in doing as many things in that way as we can in a project i don't think people are trying to be dishonest by creating personas at all right in fact they're, they're trying to do the exact opposite of that mm. but as a tool i've i've seen people latch onto it as if this is a real person um and they, and they start to miss the fact that there's so many other people involved here. Uh-huh. Um, but either way, both are really great. And they shouldn't be empty, though. They should be based off of these rich conversations with real people. Uh-huh. Um, and again, this, this is ready to... Anytime I do contextual interviews with um, different users of a website or the people that will be um, visiting the site, um, I bring one of the stakeholders with me. Uh-huh. You know, that's not necessarily a requirement, but it is always an open invite. And I encourage it strongly because as they're sitting there and listening and getting a chance to ask a couple questions, uh-huh. they get all these aha moments. They again start to connect the vision to the actual project, to the content that will exist and see why uh-huh. they can't think about themselves first. They have to think about the people that they're, are their audiences. Yeah, well, I think it's almost a must they have the stakeholders there because otherwise you're going to have maybe a stakeholder who isn't, 
who is not going to believe the data, you know? Yeah, it's, it is harder to convince, right? Mm-hmm. You have, can write a great report with the executive summary, which will be the only thing read. Mm-hmm. Um, you can share videos from, you know, user testing or these interviews. But people just don't necessarily have the time. And if they're not there to give their input, it is harder. Um, but you're right, yeah. It is, I wish it could be a requirement. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, sometimes schedules and things do get in the way. There's a reality to it. Right. Um, the next thing is discovering this core content. So this is the, the sort of this workshop, this design sprint where um, we are again locked in this room uh-huh. to get. We're trying to find that core piece of content, um, and it's it's almost like a, it's like a team building exercise uh, with less trust falls and more post-it notes. <laughs> um, so we, we lock ourselves in a room for an extended period of time and we do this content design sprint, right? We collaboratively fight through things, you know, and the, the tricky part of this is is um, everyone needs to feel safe right, to say what they're thinking. Uh, and that's tricky without trust. So we have to develop a bit of a relationship or be developing it. So the facilitator of this needs to be um, good with people, right? Um, if they can't spark a conversation, keep it going, it's very difficult. Um, and that, that's something that can be learned just through experience. And sometimes it just comes very naturally to, to certain people too. But this is where we break it down and understand, you know, um, we look at all the different content views that would be needed, you know, whether that's, you know, landing page, content page, news release, application templates, advanced search, things like that. Um, you know, often this list is established earlier in a contract, you know, because uh, unfortunately we have to, respond to RFPs and things like that or government organizations that work with a lot um, mm-hmm. have to say what they're paying for before they actually do anything right. um, and that can be tricky and we need to be able to adjust that as we go along this is kind of where we do that we say do we have all the things that we need these content templates are they going to be able to represent our vision our goals and our content can we deliver our content to our audience can our message be represented and that's when we start to break down and we prioritize those different content templates um, and rate this so priority one through to whatever many we have, right? Whether that's you know five or twelve or twenty-four, um, and then we start to work with the content template one, right? And say what are all the discrete pieces of content in here? We start to list them out because they may already exist. We may say, well, this is a standard content page that we currently have, so we'll we'll take that as a starting point. Uh-huh. Um, but it, but we need to go beyond that because there's a reason we're doing this refresh, right? Because it isn't serving the purpose that it, it needs to in the future or even currently. And so we brainstorm what are some of the other things that will need to be represented here. And we get everything out there, whether we're not sure about it or not, because mm. it's a green light, brainstorm. And then we break it down into three distinct groups. Um, priority one, which is essential. This page, this view could not exist. The message cannot be communicated without these items. And so anything can go in that. Right? We just put everything that's priority one, we mark it. Priority two is, this is great to have. It sub- message of this page and really enhance the experience. It's not essential, but it's great. And priority three is, these are nice to have. If they were there, it would, be, it would still support it. If they're not, we'd be just fine. And then we go back and do the really hard work, because that's easy. Um, okay, so you could throw everything in priority one if you wanted to. Right. Everything in each group is then broken down into, into a priority and so something, something on this page, this content, discrete content type, so that might be a title, intro copy, could be related items, whatever it happens to be, needs to be priority one, one. Uh-huh. 
mm. right? And that's really hard. That's where some of the blank stares happen across the room, and people are just looking at a whiteboard where these things are sketched out on. Um, but it's those moments where we fight through those tough things and really have to have these hard conversations to say, well, why is this priority one, one? Mm-hmm. And why is this one, two? Usually those things are quite related. Um, where we discover the places where we disagree, right? Where, where we're uh, on the same page. And we have to come to be on the same page to move past that. And it's, it's great. I have seen so many teams just come together. I even had an IT manager giggle at one and I didn't know if it was positive or not so I asked him and he says I love this process right and to have an IT manager say that I think is, is a good thing um, we then after all these things are prioritized we begin to do these simple sketches mm-hmm. so sort of sketching for the future this is just on a whiteboard a piece of paper whatever you happen to have um, preferably a whiteboard so people can see this but um where we sketch out a minimum of two screen sizes, you know, a small screen and a, and a larger screen, um, to begin to understand how will these priorities be represented in content patterns and interaction patterns. Oh. Right? So there's probably going to be more breakpoints, whether those are component breakpoints or actual like whole um, template breakpoints. But, um, but it gives us a good understanding to say, okay, on a small screen, how do we represent you know, priority one, one, you know, and, and where does this priority three, 10 reside? Do we even need this? Mm-hmm. Um, as well as on a larger screen. Um, and, and it's another aha moment for a lot of these people because they struggle with, they've been thinking about creating their content for a fixed width for so many years mm-hmm. that they haven't thought about, you know, which is now the majority shareholder, the smaller screens. Mm-hmm. Um, um, things beyond that begin to take a bit more of a... So, so if you can, like, what's... So you have content patterns and interactive patterns. Like, what type of impact... What's an example of an interactive patterns? Pattern? Okay, well, like, an interaction pattern might be a navigation pattern. Like, uh, mm-hmm. so you think about a small screen. You know, hey, do we want our navigation to swipe in from the right, mm-hmm. the left? Um, you know, what happens when we are actually... Um, four levels deep into the site and it swipes out from the right. What are we displaying? Content pattern might be, okay, on a larger screen, we're going to have this gridded view, but we need to actually also have a listing view, you know, which is a straight list. Um, So people are still interacting with it, but that's for displaying the actual content on the, you know, not the type of a device, but the size of device screen, you know, how, how can they access and see that content? Right. Cool. Okay. I was just curious because you get content. I can see you breaking down the content and stuff. I just want to know. Which one yeah. Interactive. So it sounds like it's a mixture of design, like, like a little bit of building blocks for web page, but also just the you know, the user experience too. Is that right? Yeah, and it, it's a great foundation because once we have this content modeling exercises priorities, and we we actually just break that out into either a Word doc, Google doc, doesn't matter what where everything is listed. Um, so it might be you know, related items module and there's a brief description and it shows the priority of it. Mm-hmm. Um, th- those things to become the annotations on an in-browser wireframe, right? We've already created the annotations essentially for all of this and we understand the priority orders and we can list all those things. So as we step through it, it's basically like a, it's almost like a style sheet. Mm-hmm. There's a, ca- a cascade to it where we go from very broad to very specific and each thing gets used as we go along. So there's very little Little waste. Right. Right? We don't throw things away that we don't need to. Right. Okay. Yeah. That sounds pretty awesome. So, so what's the next step after that? So after you 
Well, after after this, so we get, we get into the browser. Um, you know, these these wireframes get built out at this point. Mm-hmm. Typically, uh, a content strategist and user experience or interaction designer will be working on the post together to make sure that there's a good bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really believe heavily in sharing these things early and often with um, the broader team. You know, so so you can catch things. We're not looking for approval. We're just saying, hey, you know, here's the after day. One in the wireframes. Here's what you can see, right? And everybody can see it. And there's that context set around it. It's like this is, you know, we've got you know, three more weeks of working on these, but we want to see our starting point. So that if we hit um, something where someone diverges from the principles or the vision that we'd set out, anybody can see that and go, oh wait, 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 you, you did this. Why, uh, why did you do that? Or they can offer the opposite where they say, hey, have you thought about this? Now we don't have to take any of those things and incorporate them in, but it allows for this to be an open process. Uh-huh. Sorry, an open process. <laughs> uh, I was going to let that one slide just because we're, yeah. we're friends now. No. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so basically just for uh, community crowdsourcing, checking, right? Just validation. Right? Yeah, this, like this would be to um, whatever level of stakeholders you're comfortable sharing that with. You know, I wouldn't, there, there's a point where it gets ridiculous, you know. Um, you know, like with this accounting organization, I wouldn't share it with all 150 people that work at their head office. Right. It would be the core people on their web that are actually working on the project. Um, but you know, it's in some ways it's it falls a bit more of a typical process that we see um, people talking about a lot. Where hey, we're working in the browser for our wireframes because I don't know how you can possibly wireframe. A responsive site that wasn't in the browser. You'd just be doing a ridiculous amount of extra work that would be thrown away. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because we because we can annotate very effectively in the browser. Um, Brad Frost got a great example of that. Um, we use um, something similar to like to what Brad does, but it's uh, essentially these numbered annotations that are attached to the different parts that open a, a, a modal box. Mm-hmm. You know, we hide or show those so we don't have to have these orange numbers all over. But it gives the requirements that maybe a government organization needs where they say, no, no, everything has to be documented. Well, it is. And we can actually pull those out um, from the comments in the code into a document if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and during that, it's to have whoever's going to be doing the actual graphic design of this involved as much as possible. So that it's not just, hey, paint this thing that we've built for you. Right. Um, that it is... What are some of the things that we're not thinking about um, as uh, a content strategist or user experience person here that you might think about it as a graphic designer? Like, hey, their logo is actually a word mark and you have words running right up against it. That will be a problem, right? That's the type of things that you, you don't think about if you're just using gray boxes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's the sense of not just collaboration, but the interdisciplinary team, right? Uh-huh. And sometimes that's hard for people. Like, it's... I. I get the opportunity to do that, but only because I push for it. Mm-hmm. I don't have an interdisciplinary team in my company because there's two of us, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. We have a little bit of that, but we don't, neither one of us is what I would call like a real developer, right? Um, and so we need to interact with people beyond our skills to, to really develop great, great designs. Mm-hmm. And, um, and do you work with a lot of um, other agencies, I guess, to? kind of fill in some of those gaps, I guess? I do, I do. Um, it's funny, I, I left without a business model. That was not always a good plan, but it seems to have worked out just fine. Like I left Yellow Pencil last year. But um, what I've ended up doing is spending a lot of my time working with other agencies to either help them define 
a bit of their process around this um, or to jump in on projects like this accounting project. So that accounting project is actually through Yellow Pencil, the company that I had left. You know, they contracted me to come back and work with them. Um, and so I've actually found that a lot of other agencies um, don't have someone like me uh, or they don't have anyone doing content strategy. Uh, they'll ha- sometimes have contractors doing that. They'll have writers, um, but they rarely have someone in-house, which really surprises me. Um, but because it's one of the things I think you need to start with, right? It, it is essential to the foundation of any project. And so there's, there's a lot of opportunity for me that way to work with agencies. Um, and the great part is I get to be part of a whole bunch of different processes, right? Where we can, I can see how, you know, um, a company like Yellow Pencil does it, or there's another company, uh, industrial brand that I've done some work with to see that they do things very differently, but I can learn from both and they have the opportunity to learn from me and in essence, learn from the other companies I've worked with too. Not that I share things that are proprietary, but I, like, I wish we talked more about our, our processes. Uh-huh. I think that would really help not only our industry, um, but our clients. They would just have better work being produced. Right. I think bringing the clients especially into it, I think, um, you know, we're starting to see at least from South By, which is how I know you, um, mm-hmm. we used to see a lot of the this person versus that person panels. Right. And, you know, client versus designer, uh, designer versus developer, developer versus... I mean, all of these different things. And I think in the like education part or building it into the process that we're actually educating each other on what we actually do. Similarly to how you said, I'm taking, um, I'm taking it into account. I just don't have to listen to it and that sort of stuff. But I think it helps make the process better for everyone. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And it's interesting. I hadn't thought about the trend of you know designer versus developer type of panels but you're right like there is a a bit of a transition that way um which is good i'm a big believer in collaboration i'm not a big believer in competition i'm not saying competition doesn't exist um but you know i you know i think if we could get our together as a human race and collaborate on more things we would have a much better world to live within Right. And I think that's true within our industry, too. The more we collaborate, the more we can all benefit from that. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to see that the, the web, I feel, is definitely doing that a lot with, you know, things like Twitter, CodePen, different ways that you can share information. Um, I don't know. It's just a nice place to be right now mm-hmm. because of a lot of that sharing. Okay. Yeah, and there definitely could be a lot more. Well, and even the open source communities that we see, like some are better than others in how they're organized and really live the open source way. Um, but uh, there was a conversation I had with a, a developer just a couple days ago where they were arguing about spec work. and Because um, the government of Canada has essentially created a contest for its 150... Oh, I was like, what? Uh, it's, it's so disappointing to see that happen. Um, because essentially they're asking for spec work. They're creating a design contest. You know, I, as a member of our National Design Society, we actually aren't allowed to participate. You know, because we have an ethical code against mm. that. Um, so, so none of those people should be participating in this. Which means some of the best designers in the country are out. Mm. Um, but I can't remember my point. I'm so worked up. 
Um, Star Force oh, World do that. Yeah. Oh, um, nope. Still can't remember it. No. <laughs> Canada, 150 years contest. Anyway, you should look into that contest. Some of the ones that they're, they're uh, showing around are, are really quite awful. And But then this other site sprung up um, of other designers who are just saying, hey, maybe you could have thought about this. And they're all beautiful, amazing <laughs> designs. And there's mocking this contest right mm-hmm. um which is really sad in the end oh oh i know what it was um oh so i was talking with the developer about this this contest mm-hmm. and and just how you know we we can't be doing this spec work you know that we need to collab and we got somehow into the topic of open source um you know and he said well what about open source that's like spec work no that's oh. that's very different. Those people collaborating together to build something. So yeah, but they're working for free and not getting paid for. I was like, well, that's true in one sense. They're working for free. They've chosen to do that. They're volunteering, but they're not working for a contest. Um, and also, it's very easy to make money off of open source. Like I don't want to sound like I'm some uh, altruistic Canadian up here. Uh-huh. Um, you know that when I contribute to something like Drupal. Uh-huh. I'm also probably going to use that thing I contributed on a project to make money, right? And every time someone contributes something, it helps my uh, company or the people I'm working with or the clients oh. do better at their business, right? Um, and then some people just give their time because they love giving their time. And I think that that's good. Um, but when we see the collaboration happen, can you imagine if Firefox had never existed, right? What state would our browsers be in? Now, it's not my browser of choice anymore, mm-hmm. but I'm very grateful that, um, that I was given the option, mm-hmm. right? And that something like that where people just want to gather around and essentially do an open source project could change the landscape of the future. You think about uh, Wikipedia versus Microsoft Encarta. If someone were to tell me in 1994 or 90, whenever Encarta came out, 90, <laughs> you know, you used to get like a, a stack of, CDs, CDs. Then, oh yeah. Uh, like you get like seven of them and you had to load this thing up and it was great. Um, if someone were to tell me at that time that there would have been a group of volunteers around the world that weren't getting paid, that were going to create something that was more accurate and better than mm-hmm. Microsoft was producing, I would yeah, right. You know, I would have laughed at it, right? Um, but of course, Encarta doesn't exist anymore and Wikipedia is one of the number one sources for information on the web. Um, and that's because of collaboration. Gosh, now I, I can't believe you just brought up Encarta. <laughs> yeah. I know. I remember getting my first copy of it, like, and being really excited about it. And I never really was able to use it very well. Um, <laughs> it was just too much information for my slow computer. <laughs> I'm in a whole other place now. Now I'm distracted. So yeah. All the things I used to look up and learn about, like, on there. I can't imagine that now. Well, I guess that is Wikipedia now, but it's a lot more accessible and you're not switching CDs halfway through because the other half of mm-hmm. the information about what you looked up or that species of monkey is on right. disk five of seven. Right. Well, that's that's kind of what the web is. So the web almost feels like it is open source, mm-hmm. right? Uh, when we think about the open source way, like if you go to opensource.com, um, they talk about the open source way and it's you know kind of inspiring. But... Uh, the fact that I can go into any search engine, right, and I can look up something, and that I'm given all these options, one of which is usually Wikipedia. Um, like when we, we were getting a puppy and we wanted to know more about 
um, different traits of different puppies with kids, uh-huh. right? Often Wikipedia was the best source for that. Um, but I didn't go to Wikipedia to look it up. Uh-huh. I went to Google, right? And right. it gave me all these options, right? Um, imagine if when we got Encarta, we were able to search every piece of software that was out there, right? And rather than just Encarta when we were doing the search for information, uh-huh. which is kind of what we're moving towards. At least it feels that way. Um, whereas the web, when the when this knowledge is shared and accessible that way, it transforms how we as a human race learn and communicate. I'm like writing everything you're saying now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, there's a great, um, it won't be a direct quote, but I remember uh, Karen McGrain at Confab this past year, um, Confab Minneapolis. She shared, and I, I, I'm just going to believe it's true, but uh-huh. that... Um, <laughs> When the iPhone came out, so right. 2007, we get this announcement, and, and it really did change how we access the web. We could do this before with Blackberries and Trios, right. like that. But um, uh, it, it began a revolution for human communication that is probably as important as the written word itself, like books. Uh-huh. Right? And it's changed how we as a human race have started to communicate with each other and can communicate. Um, you know, now we don't know exactly what that's going to look like, you know, 100 years down the road or something like that. Right. But the fact that we're making that level of communication so much more accessible, like this is why one of the reasons why responsive design is important and accessible design is that a lot of people that can't afford a computer can afford a phone. Right. Right. That's uh, something like 22% of all adults in. Uh, America oh. only access the web from a mobile device. Isn't that crazy? Um, Pretty crazy. And there's stats and, that there are more people in parts of Africa that have access to a cell phone but not to a bathroom as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's and, and, and I kind of get that. Like, I'm not saying that's a good... How else can you go to the bathroom if you don't have a cell phone? I don't understand. That's right. But, you know, communication is essential. Right? It, it is... Like to be able to access the services that your government is providing or the information that's coming out about an emergency or things like that, as much as to be able to read my favorite blog, uh-huh. right? Um, maybe the blogs seem trivial, but we're learning about each other, our society. Um, but, you know, we, we should have this right to, to access this information. I have friends that believe that, you know, um, the written word, like as in printed words, sorry, not written word, um, is going to die. I'm like, well, until everybody can have a device that they can access right. this, that it should never die because we're just getting rid of accessibility for, for so many people that can't afford it. But, but um, the idea that, that we have transformed how we as, a, as humanity access information and communicate to each other in less than two decades and primarily in the last decade right that's yeah that's that's kind of terrifying and amazing all at the same time right um it's it's hard to imagine well there is nothing else like that you know because the the printed word came out but it couldn't be distributed the way that we have distributed the web mm-hmm. yeah i think this i'll just make the printed word that much more uh, i don't say valuable but just not as uh, as needed i guess i, don't know. I mean just because i mean i, I have like I have, a, I have a big library of all these history books that are wood design books, but mm-hmm. um, but when I move, the move uh, like they're just really heavy. 
So now yeah. we have iBooks or eBooks, whatever. And so, which I don't read, so it's great. So, <laughs> but the but, iBooks take up less less space. So you, they just you, take up less space. Yeah, you buy them, you put them in iBooks, and then you hope for osmosis to kick in. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like I'll read it later because I have it now, so it's fine. Yeah. Well, maybe that's because. Um, Despite having, like, I got my first computer in 1981 and started to learn to code games mm-hmm. on this, this. It was a TI-994A. It hooked mm-hmm. up to my television right. and yeah. uh, put the programs on an audio cassette. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I'm still not a digital native. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't fully immersed in what we have now. My daughter is a digital native. Right. Um, and I sometimes wonder if the transition between, you know, having, because I got stacks of books around. I'm in the process actually even of um, getting all my DVD, like I have probably 200 DVDs trying to get them onto a hard drive. Right. Right. Um, so I'm actually getting rid of physical things. But I know what you mean when you say, hey, it's now in my Kindle. You know, or on my iPad, and right. I never, I never read it anymore because I don't see it in front of me. Right. I wonder if some of the digital natives that are emerging, um, because they may not have stacks of books around their place, will not forget about the books that are in their iPads, right? And that they they will see these this world differently. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I'd, it's like to bring the circle right back um, mm-hmm. to this this idea of this wholehearted content and these projects. This is this is why I believe in this so much, and the, like the whole the Republic of Quality is structured around creating wholehearted projects. Um, and I wish I, we I could say we were always successful at that, but we mm-hmm. work towards it. But so that this future world that we're created creating for these digital natives and for each other, mm-hmm. um, it was a good place. <laughs> it's a place where we can access that information and we understand it and we know why it exists and you know it is moving us forward as opposed to moving us backward I, I like to believe the work I do is altruistic um, I can't say that it always is um, because not every project has that as its goal but uh, I think as a designer that that should be my aim right? it should be what I'm working towards is uh, a more wholehearted world not to get too philosophical. <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds like we're just trying to get to the heart of the matter, right? That's what yes. It matter. So it's just that's the. I guess that's what you mean by wholehearted. So. The internet mm-hmm. is people too, or the web. Yeah. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what it is. Right. So, but uh, yeah, and they're all watching YouTube videos. Just yeah. Guess, no. yeah. But, cat videos. Cat videos. Cat videos. Um, or or animated graphics of cat or, videos. Or looking at pictures of Sloan, right? Oh my gosh! Yes, my dog Sloan. Yeah. Um, as soon as I got a puppy, I was like, "I am now a cliche." I like I announced it. I'm going to be that cliche and just be ready for it. Um, I mean, he has his own Instagram account. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, the funny thing is, like, we, we kind of laugh about it, but uh, I've met so many people through Instagram, and it helps to know their. I like to say, "Hey, I understand that you care a lot about your family and about your dog." Like, there's this moment where, like, Instagram really is kind of this. It can be this wholehearted experience. Yeah. It can also be horrible, though. <laughs> yeah. Occasionally, I'll go to the popular um, uh, images or whatever, and I'm just looking. Go, no, I don't. I don't need to know about these. Yeah, I have no idea. Like, I don't, it's like the the most popular section of YouTube for me. I feel like really old. I'm like, what? What, am I, yeah. what, am, what, doing, what does the fox say? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that one, I actually got an email from YouTube saying I was one of the fi- first 5% of the world to see that video. Wow. Yeah, and I'm like, well, I'm not really proud of that. 
So. <laughs> add, add, add that to the resume and Twitter bio. Yeah, I, I'm playing off cool, but I did frame it and put it on the wall, so just in case anyone walks by. Yeah. Just, just, yeah. I'm a but, uh But yeah, but like so many days up there, I'm like, I don't even know why this is popular or whatever. It's all that fast editing MTV style. Those yeah. kids are into these days. <laughs> but, Those uh, kids. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so yeah, whole yeah, I think it's just um, it's just amazing like how fast uh, not fast but like you know the work you're doing is just because you know I started been on the web since forever and content has always been a big issue with clients and teams trying to get get their stuff up and running. So it's so just to see just talk about this process. This has been nine. You know, it's, it's, it was a great process. It's like you know, it makes sense and and um, go through it just to try to weed out and get to the the, the nub or the central part of it, mm-hmm. especially and for um, um, you know to deliver the content to people. So but, yeah, uh, it's, it's just, and especially for I really like what you do. Like when you talk about just getting out a, a small screen and a big screen and just introducing the concept of the challenge. A design for responsible design. Not like the full like barrel, like the, like both barrels are just coming out of here, but just like just here's a small taste of it, of like yeah. trying to put content into the small screen versus over here and see what 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 works and stuff like that. So, but yeah. So um, it's almost time to go. So we'll we'll do the last usual question. Sure, go for it. It's your question. Oh, it's my question. Okay. I feel like it's your question. Yeah. You're always good at you know wrapping. Well, we talked about a lot today, but uh, the question <laughs> we usually talk about is. Uh, uh, what are you passionate about these days? Like, or what yeah. is there a technology? Is there a technique? Is there you know uh, a YouTube Sloan, video? <laughs> but uh, what what, uh, what what what's what's driving you? Like, what what makes you happy to get up and start working? You know, it, like I guess I've talked a lot about my what the passion is, you mm-hmm. know, in in seeing these whole other projects. But I really want to see you know, the web design industry, sort of that broader design develop. An industry um, change how it looks at projects, oh. right? That it sees. Um, just talked about that the web is pe- is people. It is right. Where it's not sure these machines connect us oh. and host our things, but it's people connecting to people. And you know, your website is a black hole without its content. It's also a black hole if you haven't thought about the people, right? And so. I think the thing I'm most passionate about is spending more time talking and writing and sharing and working with companies to say, this is how you can think about your process. Right? This is how you can transform your projects so that you know, not only will they be more successful for you as a business, because that just is a byproduct of this, but it will really be successful for the people they're meant for. Right? Um, I would like to, to, to know that I can be part of impacting our industry that way. So, so it's really not technology. I'm, I'm very r- rarely passionate about any technology anymore. When I was younger, I was. Um, mm-hmm. you know, but now I just see them as pieces of my life that allow me to do certain things. Mm-hmm. Right? And um, Although I do want a good wearable tech watch <laughs> or something, smart watch. <laughs> I'm waiting for a good one to come out. Right for the Dick Tracy watch? Is that what? That's right. Yeah, if you could just make it look like that. That'd be um, awesome. I could, I'd, I'd, I'd awesome. go for that. But then I feel like, I feel really weird. Like, that makes it, if, if I had a Dick Tracy watch, it would be kind of weird when I butt dial someone. 
this one. You know, it's it, it actually <laughs> one of the number one selling features for me, though, of something even like the Pebble Watch, and it's gotten better. Like they just had an iOS seven release, which was good, and um, but is. I, I don't wear a watch anymore, and uh-huh. so the thing I check for time is my phone. Right. And I actually kind of panic when I don't know where my phone is. It's right. wearing a hole in my pocket on every pair of pants I have. Right. Right. Um, but once I pull the phone out to check the time, it's like, oh well, what's on Instagram? You know. And I it's this huge time suck, or or I'm not paying attention to the people that I'm with. I love it when I watch someone who has a Pebble watch and they just kind of glance down and go, oh, that's not important. And then they keep looking at me. Then the phone never came out of their pocket, right? Oh. And um, right. so I'm kind of excited about that side of wearable tech. Um, so there's that part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's... Um, yeah, I think um, I actually just started wearing a watch again just to see what it's like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And um, but I haven't put a battery in it, so I'm just seeing what oh. I, how that goes. Just to see how like just like just getting used to the idea of wearing a watch again, and just seeing if anyone like makes a comment about like, hey, you're wearing a watch. Like it's like yeah, I know. But um, but yeah, but I still check the time on the on the phone so with that. But uh, but yeah, but yeah, it's kind of like a social experiment to see how yeah, it goes. So, That's funny. Yeah. That's great. But uh, cool, awesome. Well, how can people find you online? Um, well, they can find me at. Uh, Um, or you know an easy easy place that I respond quite often is Twitter Mm. I'm Hello Fisher on Twitter I'm Hello Fisher in most places Um, HelloFisher.com too was my personal site Um, there's not much information there but you can all my contact information is on both sites okay cool Cool. well thank you so much for being here great thanks for having me yeah and then uh, Sam thanks for being with me today of course how can people find you on the they can find me um, also on the Twitterverse at Sam Cap with a K. Cool. And uh, I'm Christopher. You can find me as Teleject, uh, T-E-L-E-J-E-C-T on Twitter. And hope you guys see you next time.